In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Fool me, can't get fooled again. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I am Ben Kissel, and this is the Dumpster Fire Chats Part 3. I want to thank everybody who submitted their emails. We've got a lot to get to, and it's certainly been an interesting uh, weekend. Of course, Donald Trump and his administration had some massive immigration sweeps, uh, illegal immigration, of course, where they arrested uh, over 300 people. And, uh, and it really is the beginning now of, of Jeff Sessions. It's the beginning of his Justice Department. And uh, we're going to see just uh, how extreme he is as an attorney general. Now, of course, uh, Barack Obama, he deported 2.5 million, roughly 3 million illegal immigrants, more than any president in history. So a lot of people are looking at what Donald Trump is doing right now and saying, it's simply more of the same. Uh, there is no difference in policy. And uh, you could say that the current raid that happened uh, now with the Trump administration was a policy left over from Obama's administration, which is true. Uh, one of the major key differences, however, is the way that they're conducting these sweeps. Of course, ICE, they would, uh, under Barack Obama, they had a target, they had an individual they wanted to arrest, detain, and deport. Um, and they would solely go after that person. They would, if the person was hanging out, whether it be family or friends, obviously, uh, birds of a feather flock together. So a lot of illegal immigrants. Uh, would live in a world uh, surrounded by other illegal immigrants. Uh, the Obama administration's approach to that was just to get the person that they targeted, just to get the individual that was, uh, you know, on the hit list that day for ICE and leave all the other illegal immigrants alone. Donald Trump has a slightly different policy when it comes to that. He will be collecting, taking as if they are... This is his version of Pokemon Go. That's just uh, what power allows you to do. Uh, so he's going to collect them all, for lack of a better analogy, as opposed to allowing the individuals who are surrounded by the person being targeted by ICE to stay. Um, he will be collect. He will. He will be. Um, arresting, detaining, and deporting everyone. So that is a shift in policy. However, the people who do uh, discuss how. 
Obama was extremely hawkish when it came to his domestic illegal immigration policies. Uh, they're, they're completely uh, accurate in that assessment as well. But now, of course, we have Donald Trump, uh, who is sort of the Obama 2.0 when it comes to deporting illegal immigrants. But we're definitely going to go into more detail on that uh, here on the future, uh, here in future episodes for sure. Um, all right. Well, let's just get into some of the listener emails. Again, thank you so much for writing in. And uh, there were some comments. People said, oh, it sounds like you're crying. You seem to be exceptionally depressed. Well, I think that might just be the way I'm recording these, because as Mark Marin of What the Fuck fame uh, records in his garage, because he's in beautiful, sunny Los Angeles, here in New York City, I'm forced to record in my closet, which I think is very exciting. I'm staring at my Jose Bank jackets right now, and I am. it does make you emotional when you think about how fun they are to wear. Um, all right, everyone, let's just start it up here. The first email comes in from Ano. Uh, Ano is an amazing guy. Thank you so much for writing in. For those that haven't seen a live last podcast on the left show, our final segment is called One for Us, One for You. And the segment for us is a video that is absolutely disgusting, disturbing, and um, some could argue extremely immoral um, or surgical, which is also uh, equally uh, distasteful. So he sends us all of those or many of those. So thank you so much for all your help over the years, Anno. And uh, okay, he writes in, the subject of this email is to punch or not to punch. It's very Shakespearean. To punch or not to punch. He writes, hey Ben, I've been loving the, dump I've been loving the dumpster fire chats and hope this is a recurring segment. I think it will be. I'm writing to put in my two cents about punching Nazis. I know we're supposed to be all about the nonviolence and accepting other, others' beliefs, but if you associate yourself with a group that is known for its hate and snazzy way of dressing, you deserve to be punched. I do think you equate snazzy dressing with hate, and those things are not mutually exclusive. There's a lot of snazzy dressers who are extremely nice, such as, you know what, you might have a point there. Uh, he goes on, he says, I know I'm probably in the minority, but I really don't care. Nazis are not cool. You guys and defending them means you're on their side. Keep up the good work. Kissel for Prez 2020. Love, Anno. I understand. You know, if violence has to happen, um, let that violence happen to a Nazi. I am fine with that. Um, and I don't disagree uh, with your overall lack of sympathy for um, Nazis being punched in the face. So that is a good that is a good point, and thank you for sharing. This other one comes in from Ethan, and the subject matter is apologies in, adv apologies in advance to your grandfather. Well, my grandfather, both of them, way dead, way dead. So no need to apologize to them. They've already won. They lived. They loved. And thankfully, they got the eternal peace of death. All right. So Ethan writes in, again, apologies in advance to your grandfather. He writes, firstly, thank you for reading my previous email on air. That really made my day. And I've made everyone I know listen to it. They're all very annoyed with me now. Well, that's good. Second, it is perhaps a bit uh, 
I don't know, I guess douchey he's trying to write, it, a, a bit douchey to write what is more of a response to one of the emails on the last dumpster fire chat and less a response to anything you, Marcus, or one of your guests has said, though I can sort of tie it in. But frankly, we should absolutely be happy that Richard Spencer got punched in the face. We should, and this is where the apology comes in, be happy any time any Nazi or white supremacist of uh, of any or any of their ilk get punched in the face. Yes, I agree with you. Uh, yes, I agree with what you said in response to my previous email that it becomes troubling when any group is singled out. But at the, at the same time, this group defines itself by their hatred and dehumanization of others. You can't have a meaningful discourse with them because to do so is to legitimize their platform. History shows that talking to Nazis ends badly. I won't go so far as to actively advocate punching Nazis, but when it gets right down to it, is there any other group more deserving? Just wanted to air my thoughts on the matter. Thank you for your time and magustulations. Well, thank you, Ethan. Uh, again, I agree. If you're going to punch anybody, punch a Nazi, you know, or somebody who gets your order wrong at, um, at, a, at a cold stone. Oh, I love cold stone. All right. So that's I think we're all in agreement that uh, violence is the last resort. But if we have to be violent, be violent against a Nazi. All right. Let's move on. This next question comes in from John and uh, or email rather. Uh, all right. The um, the subject is evangelical concerns, evangelical concerns. Of course, I know the evangelical community very well growing up in the evangelical world. Uh, I understand the uh, strange nuances of their political slash religious beliefs. So hopefully we can uh, bring some clarity clarity uh, to this subject a little bit. Okay, John writes in. Hi, Ben. This is, uh, let's see. It was great chatting with you at the last podcast on the left live show in January, having been a long time last podcast on the left fan and libertarian. My recent hop over to Top Hat has been a natural and enjoyable uh, and an enjoyable one in this depressing climate. Thanks, thanks for being the voice of reason. When we spoke, you were relatively optimistic, but recent events have gotten really unnerving. What has most bothered me is how many of Trump's actions seem to be courting evangelicals as a reward for this election and solidifying his base for the next. I had grown comfortable with the narrative of the GOP catering to big business while hiding under the mantle of conservative social issues to keep the common man. At least there, were, at least there might be some economic motivators to such attack. These days, however, I am certain that almost all these political actions are directly aimed at evangelicals. Well, you make a good point. Of course, Mike Pence being the first VP in history to speak at the March for Life, uh, the March for Life rally. And, uh, and we can get more into this uh, when it comes to James Dobson, Pat Robertson, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., the real spokespersons for the evangelical movement, the ones who have certainly monetized it for their own gain, and the people who can get massive amounts of people, massive, massive amounts of people out to the polls to vote. Okay, he goes on. As an engineering professor, one of the most troubling of these actions are the appointments of DeVos, Perry, and Gelertner. 
I'm not against school choice, nor am I crazy for regulation. However, climate change denial is revealing itself as more of a religious issue than an economic one. I suspect the root is something to the effect of man being unable to destroy God's perfect creation. I assure you, we can. I also assure you, it will happen before we colonize Mars. The science isn't out. Feel free to discuss any of this on the podcast. Uh, okay, and indeed I did. Thank you so much, John, and Magustalations right back at you. When it comes to evangelicals, of course, it started with the one and only Jimmy Carter. Um, he was really kind of the guy that ushered in um, evangelicalism as a mainstream philosophy, as a mainstream, um, uh, you know, religion. Before that, it was really sort of evangelicalism was sort of able to cobble together a lot of the fringe um, Christian-based cult groups that sprung up as a rejection of the 60s free love, uh, you know, hippiedom of the 60s. And it started to really percolate and become popular around the 70s. Uh, my parents, for example, were, star um, were part of a really a cult in my personal opinion. And I think, and I think that uh, that would stand if you look at the economics and the overall um, structure of their community. Uh, Daystar, they were part of a, of a group of people called Daystar. Uh, it was, it was Christian-based, and, you know, I remember uh, my mother uh, crying um, when they went up to the head pastor to try to get um, some money for us to have ice cream. You know, everything went into the coffers of, these, of the leaders of Daystar, and the evangelical movement was really able to solidify itself under uh, Jimmy Carter as the first evangelical uh, presidential uh, candidate. And what the conservatives realized was the voting block is massive and motivated, and they will always show up in support of their candidate, regardless of if that candidate has their best economic interests in mind. So we go back with Pat Robertson, as I mentioned earlier. The man has anywhere from $200 million to $1 billion, $1 billion, um, just for spreading a bunch of lies and nonsense and reaching out to those people who um, felt disenfranchised or who were looking for another version of the religion that got them so inspired in the first place after the cults devolve and and once you realize that um they're by definition a human institution and there's nothing religious about it pat robertson was able with with the 700 club to isolate people in their living rooms and so they didn't have to become parts of a cult any longer they could really just feel on fire for the lord from the comfort of their lazy boy and indeed many of them are exactly that and then of course we have james dobson who in 1981 became extremely political um he is huge with the right to life program and uh although i mean he is the main guy him and pat robertson and uh jerry falwell it was in 1981 when he founded, this is James Dobson, when he founded the Family Research Council. And this is where they really went out, sort of coined what social conservatism was, let Republicans know that if they follow this pro-life, pro-Israel, anti-gay, anti-transgender um, 
you know, uh, anti anything other than traditional, perceived traditional values, there would be hell to pay for them. But if they followed along, if you're a Republican, many of these Republicans are extremely smart. They're lawyers. Um, not that that necessarily makes you smart, but what I'm saying is they're educated. And they knew if they wanted to get elected in a lot of these congressional districts, if they wanted the cash, and in these Senate uh, races, if they wanted the cash and they wanted the support and they wanted the guarantee of people at the polls in favor of them, they better cowtail to everything that James Dobson says with his family research council. And they tied it all in together, uh, and they pretend as if it was about taxes or states' rights. In reality, it was about um, setting up a theocracy. That would be their perfect. Um, that would be their perfect form of government. Obviously, uh, that is they. That's um, you know they they are they're almost jealous of the Muslims in the Middle East, uh, in Saudi or well, not Saudi Arabia uh, necessarily, but in. Um, in many places in the Middle East that are theocratic. Uh, you know, obviously it's not their religion of choice, but they don't mind that governmental business model. So now we have this situation where economics are not in their favor when it comes to the environment. They want to be, uh, they want fracking to be done 100% of the time. And we're going to get in, we got a great email coming up here from somebody discussing fracking. And uh, they, they understand their money is in oil. Uh, they get that. This is why, again, Pat Robertson can be a billionaire and James Thompson isn't far behind him. So now they've tied in climate change with their so-called religious agenda. And it has nothing, nothing to do uh, with anything. At no point was Jesus like, by the way, feel free to mine the earth of all of its resources. However, he did... Um, the Bible does say things about how man is to, is in charge of the earth. We have to take care of the earth. Um, this is why, you know, um, uh, eating animals and, and those sorts of things, those were almost gifts from God, gifts given from God to man. So please enjoy the fruits of the earth and things like that. So they really do fancy themselves caretakers of the globe. One of the great ironies, of course, is you could argue, uh, you know, denying climate change and allowing us to continue down the path that we're going with complete rejection of, of other sciences regarding energy independence. And this is what I, you know, I was having a conversation at the bar yesterday. I am not against fracking on local, small levels uh, in, in certain situations. It might be a rational thing to do. Again, I'm not against, uh, you know, drilling for oil and things like that in certain areas, but we need an all-hands-on-deck approach, 100% of our resources. We need solar. We need wind. Uh, you know, Lord knows how many different scientific um, advancements have been made in, in, uh, in energy. So we need to have an all-hands-on-deck. But now with them, of course, James Dobson, Jerry Falwell Jr., Pat Robertson's of the world, they have heavy investments when it comes to oil, when it comes to fracking, so that this is how it's all about their bottom line, and it's not about religion whatsoever. And it really is unfortunate to see so many people who are good at heart, you know, despite, for example, with my parents having the two gay older brothers, 
despite the fact that they, you, you know, did not go to my older brother's wedding, which was extremely hurtful, uh, and things like that, um, they have love in their hearts. You know, we did foster care. I actually wrote an article for Heat Street um, about how um, I also wrote an article about how there needs to be a Satanist or secular humanist president. But I wrote an article about how evangelical Christians tend to take in more foster children than not, and they tend to adopt more as well. And of course, so they they do have some good qualities. But then when you mix the, uh, the you know the the religion with politics, when you put things through that lens, it gets all distorted, and it really comes out uh, that prism in a negative way. For example, Karl Rove, when he was in the 1999 primary, of course, being Bush's brain, being the man behind the Bush campaign, uh, he was running against John McCain. And John McCain, um, it wasn't as if he was favored to win, but he was high in contention to win the nomination for the Republican Party. And what Karl Rove did was spread lies about John McCain having a black daughter out of wedlock, but in reality, John McCain did a good Christian thing and adopted a girl um, who, uh, who was in need of a home. Uh, and that's a very evangelical thing to do. But nonetheless, you have W uh, espousing how he don't drink no more, how he's just a good God-fearing man, how he doesn't want to be an interventionalist. If you go back and you watch those W-Gore debates, I mean, unbelievable. But by today's standards, it was, like, not exciting. But uh, but if you go back and you just listen to everything that W says, he's talking about being non-interventional as being a compassionate conservative, how Jesus saved his life and how he wants to spread love and take care of every child when it comes to education. That was his platform in 1999 when he got elected to the presidency in a total fraud because Catherine Harris purged 900,000 uh, votes off the voting books in Florida, where, of course, Jeb was the Jeb, Jeb, Jeb. Jeb was the governor, but we don't have to get into all of that and relitigate uh, the 2000 election. Um, so the evangelicals speak out of both sides of their mouths when it comes to courting the evangelical. The evangelical leaders speak out of both sides of their mouth when it comes to courting the evangelical votes. And um, because the allure, the, the ring, the power of the ring um, brings out the golem in everybody and you can certainly see that with the religious right and now they're doing exactly what they had done with with gay issues um with with uh with with abortion issues you know they're doing the exact same thing with climate change because if you don't have core issues of disagreement if you don't manufacture issues of disagreement you don't have a motivation to get people out to the polls. And that's what they're doing with climate change right now. So that's a great email. Thank you so much for writing in regarding evangelicals and climate change and their current utter denial of it. And I'm sure you can imagine people who believe in a 6,000-year-old Earth might not be uh, the most pro-science people around. Um, all right. Well, let's keep this going. Let's do another one regarding the Dakota Access Pipeline. We can stay in that world for a little while. Uh, this message comes in from Alex. I don't know if Alex is a boy or a girl, but I'm going to say it's a wonderful person. Um, okay, the uh, Alex writes in, the, the message is Dakota Pipeline and Native Eraser. 
Um, okay, so the message goes, hey, Ben, really enjoying CCR during this insane time, and it was great to meet you briefly after the My Favorite Murder live show at the Bell House. That was an amazing experience. Uh, it was so fun to be the special guest for My Favorite Murder. The crowd was incredible, and uh, and they are just wonderful. Okay, so Alex throwing uh, his two cents in here. Just wanted to throw my two cents in about the continuing conversation about the Dakota access pipeline. I understand and definitely agree with you that we need to be working toward energy independence in this country, and I am constantly freaked out by the atrocities committed over oil. However, when you said that you think we shouldn't be invading other places to get our oil, I couldn't help but wince. The Lakota Sioux, whose land the Dakota access pipeline would be running through, were the people this government originally invaded. Native American erasure and erasure over the continued fight for the reasonable sovereignty over their land is super disheartening. Environmentalists and celebrities like Shailene Woodley are taking over the conversation, but the issue goes deeper than oil. It goes back hundreds of years and through the many made and then broken treaties by the federal government. I'm very good friends with two Lakota Sioux people. One is my roommate here in Brooklyn, so it, clits, so it hits close to home would simply appreciate some thought going their way when discussing the issue. Thanks, and keep on keeping on. Cheers, Alex. Well, thank you so much for writing in, and that's totally correct. And, and, and a good reminder that we cannot lose uh, sight of the people who are really affected by these decisions made by large corporations uh, and, of course, with a government that's complicit. Uh, the, the the Sioux tribe, I, I, I think there were different ways they could have handled the Dakota Access Pipeline, the protest of the pipeline. From my understanding, the Obama administration put in place um, a rerouting of the pipeline. Now, I don't know exactly where that rerouting is going. I don't believe that has officially been released. Donald Trump has said that he will um, go along with the rerouting that the Obama administration had put in place um, in a way, uh, in an attempt to uh, extend an olive branch uh, to the Sioux people. But, yes, it cannot be understated enough, the amount of mistrust, um, and rightfully so, that the, that the Lakota have towards the U.S. government and Native Americans in general towards uh, the U.S. government because, without a doubt, uh, the government has been less than honest when dealing uh, with their concerns and when they make these treaties that, uh, as you mentioned, they're so willing to just go back on. Um, okay, we'll continue on here a little bit more with the environmental stuff. You know, it reminds me, it's interesting. Um, I am reminded of when I served for two weeks on the grand jury duty in Kings County regarding people, um, civilians, and in government, and a distrust uh, that goes along with that relationship all too often. Uh, when I was there, um, you know, it was mostly black uh, individuals and Hispanics that were on the grand jury duty with me. Kings County, an extremely diverse county, one of the most diverse counties in the world. And every time a police officer or a detective would come in to testify regarding finding a gun on somebody or um, a small amount of marijuana or heroin, even the harder drugs, there was a massive amount of distrust by the jurors of, uh, you know, in, in in those minority communities because I think they've lived experiences where they've seen drugs planted, they've seen guns planted, uh, they have a rightful hesitation when believed to believe, you know, in believing uh, the police. They, they are, 
They are hesitant to do so because of past history, whether it be in their own past history or a relative's past history or a friend's past history. Uh, and that build, rebuilding those relationships, obviously now we talk about community policing and things like that, are so difficult because the wounds are constantly being reopened uh, by situations like what the Sioux are going through right now uh, regarding the Dakota Access Pipeline and the federal government wanting to take a, a piece of their land or a part of the uh, neighboring land. And, of course, uh, you can make a really strong argument, uh, you know, going under the Missouri River there, um, that it would poison hundreds and thousands of people um, if done improperly. And, uh, and so I think the Sioux, rightfully so, are completely skeptical of the government, and they don't trust it one bit the exact same way that the grand jurors didn't trust the police officers coming in to testify about um, evidence that they had procured on site when making an arrest because they have a history of, uh, of manipulating the truth and a history of violating the freedoms of the individuals uh, in, in what they're supposed to serve, of who they're supposed to serve. Um, so that's a great point. Um, okay, let's go on. Now, sticking with this is about fracking. It comes in from Stuart Day, and uh, he writes in. Uh, he's got some thoughts. He says, Ben, first love the last podcast. Absolutely one of my favorite things to listen to at work. Don't worry, I'm self-employed and I work alone. But I studied political philosophy in school and have always been interested in politics. You and Marcus on top hat have really done something much needed. So thank you for trying your best to create a non-biased political show which veers clear of all the hyperbole, which is eroding the national dialogue. A few points. A few points, though, regarding energy where I disagree with you. First is fracking. My wife and I took over her family's small organic farm on top of both of our full-time jobs. We just fully believe in being as self-reliant as possible and raising our children with a strong connection to the natural world. A few years back, the neighboring farm sold out to the fracking well. I can tell you from our experience, it's not nearly as positive of a thing as you have made it out to be in some of your comments. Yes, it can bring in money, but it doesn't always. Farmers typically are paid out by what is extracted. It is not uncommon for a farmer to lease their land and have the company not yield much. So the farmer ends up destroying their property and harming the properties around them for nothing. And the company is in no way responsible for any of the after effects. Farmers are some of the most ingenious and hardworking individuals in our country, and I have an immense respect for them, but they often don't speak the language of large lawyered up companies and can very easily be taken advantage of. We have also seen extreme evidence. Uh, we have also seen extremely evidence effects on our lands, our ability to grow and the wildlife, less, uh, less wildlife since the fracking pump was installed. Not to mention when they are working, it's 24-hour noise and lights that have imprisoned us in our peaceful little farm. Basically, when it comes to fracking, it's potentially beneficial for a small group of people, but everyone else really suffers. Whatever gains come in, whatever gains from it come, end up being short-term, which is dangerous for farmers who use that short-term gain to buy new equipment only to find the well stops producing and they are stuck with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. All in all, from what I've seen here in western Pennsylvania, it's a pretty terrible thing. 
in regards to pipeline, I agree. We need energy independence and we need to have all things on the table. But we also need to start moving away from our dependence on oil, which will never happen as long as our political system keeps propping it up and keeping other forms of energy at arm's length. I, I could not agree with you more on that. And I don't see why the argument means we can't be more sensitive about where and how we get the oil. The Dakota pipeline is a perfect example. Why does it have to go where people don't want it? Why is it unreasonable for the local population to have a say in how the pipeline is routed? The mostly white, wealthy town was all too easy to get the company to change its plans. To me, in regards to the Dakota pipeline, that's really the issue. You have one group of people who have enough political sway to move it further south, but another group of people fights for months and ends up just being steamrolled. That part of the country, as you know, is, is vast. I'm quite sure that they would, that with enough uh, ingenuity and will, the company could have found another pathway. Uh, sorry for the long email. Thank you, uh, and Marcus and Henry for making such quality entertainment and content. Keep up the awesome work and be well. Thank you so much, Stuart. I completely agree, and and I want that to be known. Uh, you know, the wealthy people, uh, the people who consume uh, the most amount. Uh, in our society, we all consume an immense amount. Our global footprints, all of us, I guarantee you, it would require around six globes um, to, uh, to, uh, to satisfy our, our, our need and our want and our overall uh, ingrained greed when it comes to our purchasing habits. Um, it is atrocious. It is always the poor. It's always the disenfranchised. I want a pipeline through Elizabeth Warren's backyard. I want a pipeline through uh, through Scott Brown's backyard. I want a pipeline through every single person uh, who lives in a beautiful suburbs uh, backyard. And as an individual who, as I've said many times, isn't against uh, pipelines, um, because uh, I just believe that's how, you know, we, we, if we, we just... I think that is an important role in our energy independence. I don't mind one in my backyard. What happens now, and of course you can also argue, a lot of conservatives argue, although I don't think they argue this enough because again, they are so in bed with the oil companies, eminent domain. Uh, the eminent domain issues regarding building of these pipelines are massive. Oftentimes they don't pay up. Uh, oftentimes they just simply, as you mentioned in your email, steamroll these communities, and I think that's completely and utterly atrocious. We're all in it together, and I guarantee you one thing. As soon as the pipeline messes with a view that some random, wealthy, Dick Cheney-type person has in Wyoming, they'll rethink the pipeline, they'll rethink oil, and they'll restructure their political um, agenda when it comes to getting energy independence from all angles, all hands on deck once again. So I completely agree with you, and I think that would be a great way to get a policy shift on oil, oil in the wealthy neighborhoods, pipelines in the wealthy neighborhoods. They have to deal with the spills the exact same way that the, that the people do uh, who live in New Orleans or anywhere else across this country. They should have to deal with those issues as well. And the fact that they don't, the fact they have an immunity to it because of their wealth, because, like you said, their political sway is a reason why they don't have an understanding, they don't have the desire to learn, and they quite frankly don't care because they're not affected by the um, ramifications, the negative side effects of what happens when a pipeline explodes, breaks, etc. So I completely agree with you on that front, uh, and great point. So thank you so much for writing in and sharing that. 
Um, all right, well, let's move on a little bit. Let's get out of the pipeline world and let's jump into, mm, what about this one from Caitlin? She's, the, the subject matter is not exactly Morgan Freeman. So that's true on every single level. Not exactly Morgan Freeman, not at all Morgan Freeman, as a matter of fact. Although some people say I have a good voice and I know people uh, really enjoy Morgan Freeman's voice. So from that perspective, perhaps uh, I could be somewhat like Morgan Freeman, but I'm certainly not exactly Morgan Freeman. She writes in, hey, Ben, I met you in the Portland show in December for the last live podcast on the left live show i just had i just started listening to abelgan's top hat at that point i'm a big fan of the dumpster fire chats i'm a vet assistant and one day last week we had a dog in the clinic who was anxious as fuck we put her in a nice quiet room but it didn't seem to help so i thought ben kissel's calming voice seems calming to me maybe it will help i played the first dumpster fire chats episode on my phone and left it with her i wish i could tell you that you and your voice is a magical calming tool but she didn't really seem impressed. I've heard that dogs like ABBA, so maybe I'll try that next time. Yeah, always go with ABBA. They're amazing because you can't misspell their name. It's the same forward as it is backwards. Anyway, I want to thank you and Marcus for everything you do at CCR, especially Abling and Stop It, and last podcast on the left. My political beliefs line up more closely with Marcus, but I like hearing your thoughts and viewing things from other perspectives. I was wondering if you and Marcus have any recommendations for books to help me get more of an understanding of our current government and political climate. I want to educate myself and become more involved. But every time I step into the political science section of a bookstore uh, or, li or a library, I feel entirely overwhelmed. I can't wait to hear more about this political platform you're working on. Hail yourself, Caitlin. You know, um, I hear that question all the time regarding politics and people just feeling overwhelmed. It's, it's one of those things where I, I just understand the the most important thing to understand when beginning to get into politics is that it's a human institution. And once you understand the humans behind the institution, and once you understand the motivations behind people in that human in, uh, institution, it really helps. Uh, you know, I mean, so for, you know, go back and you can read like Hobbes, you know, Hobbes was very pro uh, monarchy. So he would write about how the monarchy was a um, superior form of government and uh, and how this would be this is how it should be and then you have someone like Locke who was completely against uh monarchy and that and that um and that way um of of thinking politically so you know just go back and read some of the early political theorists and they help you understand sort of the 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 broad strokes of it you know obviously now we would have uh, the theory of limited government versus non-limited government, uh, you know, as we saw with the Ted Cruz, Bernie Sanders debates regarding health care, the two philosophies, you know, it used to be uh, non-monarchy and uh, pro-monarchy, anti and pro-monarchy. And now, of course, it's pro-government or anti-government. Uh, of course, we live in a world now where the Republicans have just put a budget that's going to add $9.7 trillion, with a T, trillion dollars uh, to the budget. So there is no such thing as small government uh, any longer. I mean, that is uh, out the window, out the door, uh, you know, W with, with uh, standardized testing, no child left behind. I mean, there isn't one. Um, there's, there's the last bastion for states' rights, I believe, is a, it's basically Rand Paul, and uh, he doesn't seem to be becoming president anytime soon. So just jump in. Uh, you know, I mean, one of the first books that I read about politics um, was just written by Michael Moore. I, I just read a Michael Moore book. It was like 1999, maybe 1998, and I thought it was fun. And then I read, uh, you know, I even picked up 
um, uh, some Bill Maher books. I think I read a Bill O'Reilly book. You know, so just though, and those are simple reads. That's just popcorn reading. Um, you know, all those like the Ann Coulter books. All that stuff is just it's it's not extremely uh, intellectually challenging. Um, and then just kind of you know sort of you know work on your political philosophies. Um, you know, there's. Uh, by listening to other people, and then through time, you're going to have creative ideas of your own, and um, and and you're going to be able to pick out hypocrisies, like we just talked about on the last episode about how the right is now in bed with WikiLeaks, uh, and uh, and in supporting Sololinsky-like political tactics. I mean, the amount of lack, the the lack of self-awareness is just astounding. So that's really my only advice, and and just enjoy it and have fun, and and try not to get. Uh, too emotionally invested in the issues. Uh, obviously, politics are extremely emotional, um, and that's but that's the fun of it is that it does matter. And so, if you look at it like that, it's not sports. At the end of the day, although they are a massive industry, and uh, they certainly matter to the to the people who are betting on them in in um, Las Vegas. But at the end of the day, if the Patriots or the Falcons win the Super Bowl, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change our daily life. Uh, politics can. And they do. And so that's why it's uh, it's scary, but that's also why it's so exciting. Um, so just just jump in and, and you watch as many documentaries as possible. I love documentaries. I'm reading a book right now. Um, it, it's very uh, it's just called The Greatest Political Speeches. And so that's written. Um, it's literally just verbatim. Uh, I just read one from Frederick Douglass regarding July 4th. And it was just fascinating to hear him talk about how July 4th, when he sees everybody celebrating, it just drives home the point that he is disenfranchised, lesser than. They're not at the table. They're, they're not part of the winning to, uh, to steal something that Donald Trump uh, so boldly brags about uh, loving, succeeding, and winning. Uh, but they're not part. They don't get the benefit of the nation. And so you get to read things like that. And it's really illuminating, and they're great history lessons without the the you know BS editorial you know nonsense. So that and that's just called uh, the greatest political speeches. And uh, so I, I I love reading that book. You know I read a book about Gary, Barry Goldwater in his own words. It's called you know. So there's so many different ways uh, to get the information out there. I like to go directly to the source, read what they actually said. Um, because so oftentimes when it gets stuck in the spin cycle, regardless of what O'Reilly says, his show is a spin zone. And it really does um, erode the importance and the significance of the things that they're saying. Because those are the people with talent and those are the people who understand government. And those are the people, good politicians, understand why they're doing it. And uh, that's why I don't hate all politicians. And that's why I think they should be tarred and feathered when they... Um, when they uh, abuse that trust that we've given them as as citizens, and because they're just citizens as well, um, they should be tarred and feathered when they abuse it, because it makes all of them look bad. But there are still some good politicians out there looking out for the greater good. Obviously, gerrymandering and redistricting has uh, impaired their ability to reach across the um, uh, the proverbial aisle. And uh, specifically when it comes to political philosophy, as we talked about a little bit earlier on in the show with the religious right, for example, if they don't cowtail, you know, you can't be a Republican and pro-choice or vice versa. Uh, and I think that's really sad because there are so many other issues out there um, that, that are significant. But people, they get stuck on these simple, single issues 
Uh, of course, not that abortion rights are a simple issue, but they are a singular issue. And it is unfortunate that there isn't a fluidity of political thought throughout individuals who are running for office because of gerrymandering redistricting. It's simply not allowed because they will never be reelected. That is why I'm also very pro-term limit. And quite frankly, I would uh, propose an idea where we have a president who has one six-year term as opposed to two four-year terms or the possibility of a total of eight years because I think the re-election problems are, uh, are really what drives these politicians uh, it's what drives them to constantly be fundraising, and it what drives and it's what drives them to the status quo. And of course, the flip side argument of that would be if they don't have a reelection, uh, then what would give them? What would motivate them to do well for the people? What if they just screw everybody over because they don't seek a reelection? It doesn't matter. I just believe that there is so much power in corporations, um, within corporations, when it comes to their ability to lobby. Politicians are now more likely to go with what the money says than what the people say. And I think they would be alleviated if they didn't have to constantly worry about being uh, reelected. And, of course, we have to say one positive thing about Donald Trump. Uh, he did say that he, lobbyists are out of his cabinet. Uh, there will be no lobbyists coming through uh, whatsoever. Of course, I think the great irony is, is because he just put the lobbyists in his cabinet, such as Rex Tillerson for ExxonMobil. He doesn't need to be lobbied by ExxonMobil because he is ExxonMobil. So he kind of, uh, you know, it, it's a bit of a misnomer that he's, that he's draining the swamp, to use that disgusting uh, cliche, um, when it comes to lobbyists in his White House, in the executive level, because, of course, he's just surrounded them himself by people who would otherwise be lobbyists, but he's given them roles. All right, let's keep on moving here. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, all right, this one coming up here, it's from Ainsley, and uh, and I'm assuming that, I don't know, you know, I don't, I know nothing. As, as far as I'm concerned, everyone's a unicorn. So this next unicorn's writing in. Uh, the subject matter is, hail you, hail Top Hat. Thank you so much. Um, all right, the email begins, hello, Ben. I want to start off by saying that I love you. Well, that's very nice. Wow, I haven't uh, heard that in a while. Last podcast on the left and top hat have been absolute had been absolute saving graces for me. I thank you tremendously for that. I strongly salute you and Marcus for being so level-headed on, the, on, the, on topics every episode. It has definitely expanded my views on a lot of different things. The last episode, you had briefly discussed how you truly believe the institutional bigotry that is so apparent in the military. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more that the recruiting is much heavier in low-income neighborhoods and impoverished schools. Thank you for your insight in this, and I'd love to hear more of your opinion on institutional bigotry in the military. It is chilling and enraging to me that we do not even begin to properly care for the veterans who fight for our country, and we go through so much, and who go through so much while overseas, that we can't even begin to imagine how sickening that these veterans are how sickening it is that these veterans are not taken care of. I thank you so much. Hail yourself. Peace be with you. Ainsley, thank you so much for writing in. You know, um, the VA is, I've heard some people say, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think it does get a lot of very negative press uh, with the VA. We hear about the long wait times and we hear the tragedies uh, that have occurred because of those long wait times. Uh, and I definitely have my heart goes out uh, to those people. Then we have other individuals who had a, uh, a slightly better experience uh, with the VA. Um, what we are doing right now to our vets is not acceptable. Uh, there is no uh, 
there are not nearly enough institutions put in place to deal with what these people have gone through uh, on the battlefield, and now they come back to a country. Yes, we are at war. Sure, we're in the longest war in U.S. history. But do we feel it? Do we go out and walk by blown-out cars on a daily basis? Have we lost uh, sisters, brothers, daughters, sons, moms, dads? Obviously, the military uh, people have, but have we, have civilians lost? Does it look like Syria in downtown Brooklyn? No. I mean, maybe after, you know, the New York Nets win the uh, the uh, world championship of the NBA, maybe, maybe it'll, uh, you know, look a little bit uh, more burnt down. But no, of course it doesn't. And so the vets come back to this country, and they're just not given enough sympathy when it comes to where they were, what they saw. You can't just forget that stuff. Those are the things that stick with you naturally because they're human beings. And when they're over there, I mean, we interviewed Tamim uh, Ferez, who was so awesome to have. Uh, he was so awesome to call in, and I want to hear Tamim's thoughts on this as well. Um, when we come back, when they come back uh, in an unpopular war, I mean, there is no... Uh, there is really no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The Iraq, the invasion of Iraq is pretty much panned universally uh, across um, most political um, circuits uh, across the country. Obviously, you're always going to have your hardcore uh, neocons like Bill Kristol, um, who hasn't seen a country he doesn't want to explode. But really, a lot of rational political thinkers in the military as well have concluded that Iraq War, that the Iraq War was a massive misstep. So we have a situation, Vietnam asked, where these soldiers are coming back. What did they fight for? Why were they over there? What they saw, we don't care because we didn't win. Because war is messy. And it's not, uh, to use the, just, it's not football. It's not basketball. It's not soccer. You know, it, it, there is no scoreboard at the end of the day that's like definitive loser, definitive winner. It's messy, it's disgusting, it's dirty, and there is no way that we can tell how well we actually did. And so these soldiers get back here, and, and people don't want to hear their stories. They don't want to uh, be concerned about what they had to go through because they would just prefer to forget it ever happened in the first place. And I think that's really, really extremely unfortunate. And um, and we need to do better. As a nation, you know, we have, sure, we have wounded warrior projects. That's good. We'll have, uh, you know, uh, displays of affection for the troops, very symbolic corporate events where everyone is making money. Everyone's patting themselves on the back for being so loving to these to these troops who are now coming back because of technology with uh, missing arms, missing legs damn near missing everything except for their cerebral core, which is keeping them alive. And no one cares. And when they do care, they do it for corporate motivations, for financial gain and overall greed. Wounded Warrior Projects, from what I understand, is a, is a fairly good company. Um, but my goodness, I, I just could not agree with you more. We need to start treating our vets with a lot more compassion. They didn't make up the war. They're the ones who got out of school, volunteered in the military for a college education. Um, God knows what their other options were. You're in the inner city of Atlanta or a whole series of other places across this country, and you have an opportunity to get out 
you take that opportunity to get out. Ed Larson's going to come on the show. He was just at a USO tour tour with uh, Jeffrey Ross, and um, he had a lot to say. He saw a lot of things, and uh, and I'm excited uh, to hear what he saw and uh, and get his perspective on a few things because you know they they literally they sleep in borderline solitary confinement cells. Obviously, they have the ability to leave their cells, um, but you know it, it's all it's just brick. It's all cinder blocks. And it's a miserable existence. Not that they signed up to go to a club med, but nonetheless, I do think um, it is important for us to remember them. Um, all right, this next email coming in from Daniel, and uh, this is his. Oh, and it couldn't be it couldn't be more timely. It's regarding education. And for those that didn't see the education tweets today, they got W E B W E Du Bois name wrong, and then they apologizes for it. They did not apologize for it. They apologizes. So they literally got a name wrong of a famous uh, person of history. And uh, and then when they're apologizing for getting that name wrong, they had another spelling error. If that's not the greatest example of what's going to come in the future with Betsy DeVos's education uh, department, I don't know what is, but hopefully they can get it together. Anyway, this email comes in from Daniel. Uh, And the subject is, there has never been a gooder time to make our kids less dumb. He writes, hey, Ben, I'm a father of a 12-year-old daughter. I myself have always been engaged in politics and government from a young age. My first election to participate in was the Fuckopalypse 2000 Bush v. Gore. I am watching the news right now in the court's decision of Trump's travel ban, and I'm having my daughter watch it as well. This is honestly a great time for people to be educated on how government works. I can't remember any other moment in my timeline when checks and balances were so saturated within our news cycle. My feelings on this ban is neither here nor there. I think it's absurd, by the way. But I certainly do hope that schools in our country are using this moment to teach our stupid kids a little bit more on, the, on how the pillars of government actually work. Don't know how. I don't know if this is blurby enough. Whatever. But he says, take. Uh, I just think this is an educational moment for politics. And to be frank, you've kind of become one of my go-to political guys, even if you're wrong about forty percent of the time. Take care. I look forward to seeing you guys in St. Louis, Danny. Thank you, Danny. Forty percent of the time. So hey, I'm uh, I'm right sixty percent of the time. I'll take it. That's not bad. What well, by today's standards, I'm the most honest man in in podcasts uh, slash radio. Um, and you know, I do take some, um, get a little upset or stupid. The kids aren't stupid. The kids are kids. It's the, the adults are stupid because they're not teaching the kids. But I think that's absolutely wonderful that you, um, are getting your daughter involved in, in civics and in watching, uh, political events unfold. That's the best history lesson is when you watch it, uh, in the present. Uh, you know, the sad thing is, as I was watching this election cycle this past year, um, unfold in front of our very stunned eyes. Um, it is, oh, it was NC-17. It was almost unwatchable for children across the country, which maybe gave it a little edge. So perhaps kids were, for the first time ever, sneaking downstairs in the family basement to go watch Donald Trump talk about the size of his Johnson or to criticize Jeb for being tired and uh, and unenergetic. Um, perhaps it was, it did have the, the, you know, as the old cliche has become now WWE feel to it. Um, so maybe it was exciting for a young generation of children, uh, and hopefully it got them engaged in politics. A larger concern for me is that it was far too foul and parents were choosing to turn off 
as opposed to tune in when it came to educating their children. I mean, we had a situation where, uh, uh, you know, Bill Clinton's um, uh, accusers of sexual assault were sitting front row of a national presidential debate. Uh, I mean, it was unbelievable the kinds of discussions that were happening on a regular basis, extremely adult uh, discussions, but they came across as exceptionally juvenile uh, because, of course, that's how Donald Trump speaks, and that's one of the reasons that he was able to relate so much with the constituency that was previously unmotivated to go out and vote. Um, but I think that's absolutely wonderful that you're getting your kids involved, uh, getting your daughter involved. We have to have this next generation, uh, the generation I firmly believe, uh, baby boomers uh, and generation, I think it's X, whatever the one is that's just above me. Come on. They failed us. Uh, they failed the education system in a lot of ways, and they failed us, and people are eroding. There is an erosion of intellectual thought. Uh, you know, it's interesting going, harkening back here to this uh, great American um, American political speeches book that I'm reading. Uh, and I'm going to read this on a dumpster fire chat. I'll read it on dumpster fire chat part four. Thomas Jefferson, who some people um, compare Donald Trump to. Uh, if you read his inaugural address, it is brilliant. And it's written at a collegiate level. Everything makes sense. It It is not just full of... Um, uh, flimsy analogies and, uh, you know, soulless rhetoric, empty rhetoric. It's full of real political thought. And I'm going to read Thomas Jefferson's, and then I will read Donald Trump's inauguration speech as well. And we can compare the two when it comes to uh, where we are as a country intellectually. All right. Thank you. So thank you so much for writing in. The next email comes in from Lloyd. Lloyd. It's one of my favorite names. Anytime you can have two L's in the front of a name, you know, it's just nice for the L's to have friends. Okay, Dumpster Fire Chats, Dumpster Chats Part 3. He writes in, hey, Ben, thanks for reading this. If you do, well, I am, so you're welcome. And thanks for writing in. I'm a longtime listener and a huge fan of all CCR podcasts, specifically Last Podcast on the Left, Roundtable, and Abe Lincoln's Top Hat. I got to see Last Podcast on the Left at the Earl in Atlanta. Absolutely loved it and enjoyed taking a shot with you. I enjoyed taking a shot with you too, buddy. That was It's always fun to do that. Uh, that aside, I want to hear your opinions on the immigration ban slash Muslim ban and specifically its impact on American refugee settlements. I'm fortunate enough to work in a resettlement department of, a, of an agency and have gotten the opportunity to work with many grateful families, children, and clients. I cannot say grateful enough. I've never experienced such gratitude. Currently, the world has the, has the largest refugee population since World War II, and the idea of resettling 50,000 from 100,000, of which 32,000 have already been resettled, is embarrassing, especially in relation to refugees, not migrant, admission rates of our allies who have doubled down. I realize that I'm incredibly biased and I'm stuck in a bubble of refugee advocates. So what are your thoughts on the history of American refugee resettlement, the current state of the system with, with, his, with this reduction, and what do you see the administration doing in fiscal year 18 and fiscal year 19? Furthermore, do you think the strategy is to remove Islam as a religion, redefine it, redefine it as a movement or ideology so it's not protected as a religion? Everything else aside, thanks for reading this. Um, also, if you have, if anyone wants information about refugee settlements at CCR, feel free to contact me again. Uh, and if this ever goes anywhere, can you call me something else? Yes, indeed. Well, we went with Lloyd, but no one knows your last name, so we're all good. Um, okay. Well, 
first of all, uh, to your first question. So I looked it up here. It looks like fiscal year 18 right now for the refugee resettlement funding. Right now, in 2017, 2017, they got roughly $2 billion. $2.1 billion was given to the REA overall. For this uh, for this uh, fiscal year for 2000 for for 2018 they're gonna they need they're requesting 3.5 billion dollars. I am completely against this nation's history uh, of of what they did specifically when it came to the Japanese and the internment camps. And of course, uh, it is not a mistake that this is the most amount of refugees since World War II. Uh, what's happened? What happens when we go over to foreign nations, invade them, destabilize their um, their governments, and just leave? Look what happened in Libya, Hillary Clinton's war. Look what's happening in Syria. Look what happened in Iraq. Look what happened in Yemen. Every single time we do this, every single time we create global chaos that requires people to resettle. Now, fortunately for us, we have an ocean between us. Not so for France, Germany, England. Um, so they, they are on the front lines of the, of the refugee um, issue and the, and the immigration problem. Uh, so I completely understand what you're saying regarding uh, the Trump administration's rebranding of the religion as a political ideology as opposed to a religious ideology because again we cannot um, isolate religions and treat them uh, differently than people who, uh, who hold different religious beliefs so how do you do it you make it a political ideology which is exactly what general flynn um uh, very high up in the trump administration one of his chief advisors national security head of it uh security and uh, in foreign affairs, that's exactly what he's been trying to do, trying to rebrand Islam as a political philosophy, as a political ideology, as opposed to a religious ideology. And then, of course, they can do whatever they want to do. Uh, of course, going back to what we talked about uh, on the last episode regarding the Muslim travel ban, they believe it's not a Muslim ban. 15% from those seven nations, those seven ma nations make up 15% of total Muslims across the globe, the roughly one point some billion of them. So they say it's not a Muslim ban because it, that's only 15% of Muslims globally. And if it was a Muslim ban, we would have had every state that has any, any country that has Muslims in it, we would have stopped them uh, from coming in. Now, uh, again, a lot of people who are Trump supporters now, one of the great ironies of this political cycle that we're currently going through is that they're saying, well, it's an Obama idea. Well, you didn't like Obama. You didn't like any of his ideas. But now that Donald Trump, again, is Obama 2.0 when it comes to expanding the executive powers, now that he is that, oh, all of a sudden it's okay because Obama did it. So even if you do have that argument that um, uh, the seven nations were on the list uh, in Obama's White House, who cares? You didn't like Obama. And now you can't just go and say that you do or say it's okay that Trump is passing these unconstitutional laws because Obama was going to do it. And, of course, Hillary Clinton um, sort of keeping up the, uh, the immature antics of, uh, of the current political reality, tweeting out 3-0 because, of course, all three judges in the Ninth Circuit courts um, uh, voted against Donald Trump. 
Uh, and I do have to clarify a couple of things regarding the court system, and I will do that on the next episode. Somebody tweeted at me. They said I got it. I got it wrong. So uh, we'll we'll put that into the forty percent of the things that I get wrong. I guess unless, of course, I do think I got it right, but I'll defend myself uh, on that situation. Um, all right. Well, let's read another one here. This one is uh, let's let's continue on talking about uh, the U.S. and um, immigration and in foreign nations. So this is from uh, from Rod. Thank you so much for writing in, Rod. He says, uh, unique situation, U.S. territories and Trump. All right. He writes, hi, Ben. First off, let me start by thanking you for everything you and everyone else at CCR does. My name is Rod. I'm a 20. I'm 22 years old and I'm currently living in California. However, I will soon be moving back to Guam, where I was born and raised till I was 18. As you may know, Guam is one of, if not, the most advantageously placed territories for territories for the United States. It is 36 miles long and 6 miles wide and houses not only a naval base, but an Air Force, ba an Air Force base as well, with Marines coming soon. The lack of voting rights for Guam and fellow territories is a separate topic, but safety of its citizens that have no military connection is another. In 2013, when I was, in, when I was a senior in high school, under the Obama administration, North Korea announced that they had aimed ballistic missiles at President Obama um, at, at Guam. President Obama hurriedly deployed THAAD, and THAAD stands for Terminal High Altitude Area Defense. Even though nothing happened, it was by far the scariest week of my life and the closest I'd ever seen to martial law. I wrote all this to ask these questions. What do you think about the importance of U.S. territories? Do you think voting rights should be given to us, especially how much of our population per capita enlists in the U.S. military? And do you think the Trump administration increases the risk of another missile situation with either North Korea or China, who have revealed an intermediate ballistic missile deemed the Guam killer in mid-2016? These are very trying times, and I think it affects, I think it's a fact on U.S. territories have been far overlooked. As someone from Guam, I know how little attention we get on a national scale, but I hope you can give me some insight on my unique situation since no one else will. Thank you so much for your time, Ben, and everything you do. Hopefully I can vote for you someday uh, for whatever you decide to run for. Thank you again, and good luck in your endeavors. Rod from Guam. It's interesting. Uh, first of all, going to your... Um, question as far as voting goes and as far as um yeah that's it's as simple as that yes washington dc as well absolutely if you pay taxes if you are a territory of the united states if you are a, a citizen of guam and you are enlisted in the united states military yes i don't understand how that um argument how that discussion of of enfranchising we need to enfranchise uh, the territories. I, I firmly believe it, especially uh, because they are, like you mentioned, going off and fighting on behalf of this nation. So that, that's my personal belief on that. North Korea, interestingly enough, uh, they just had a uh, missile test this past weekend. Uh, the South Koreans, uh, you know, obviously quite uh, anxious about that. Uh, Obama was just meeting with some foreign leaders over here. So it was a good time for North Korea to get a little bit of exposure when it came to um, when it came to their missile programs. Now, do they have an ICBM missile that can actually make it to the United States? Probably not. Uh, they often, uh, you know, claim that they do. But every president, when they first take office, is tested 
And, um, and there is no denying that that's exactly what the North Koreans are doing right now. I think they're years and years and years away from actually having the technology. Uh, but what's happened with China, uh, you know, Donald Trump going and, and now all, all of a sudden he's one, he's for uh, the one China policy regarding China and, uh, and Taiwan, which was he was always for the two state solution. Uh, but now he's one China um, solution, which is entirely different. Uh, than what he said. You get the feeling he just speaks to these foreign leaders and they, they butter him up in such a way or he's easily convinced, um, which, of course, we do know his political philosophies have always been sort of, you know, built on top of a triangle. Uh, they can sort of fall either way, whatever. Um, but now, of course, he's with one China policy and that is possibly trying to, uh, you know, it's possible he's trying to alleviate some of the tensions uh, between the U.S. and China, and of course, uh, by proxy, North Korea and South Korea. So the tests are going to be happening. Uh, I don't think we need to be uh, extremely afraid of a domestic attack from North Korea, but we have hundreds of naval bases, hundreds of occupation points all across the, the globe, and certainly in areas that the North Koreans can hit. Uh, so and if they do, if they kill U.S. service members or U.S. civilians, whether it's on U.S. soil or not, that's an act of war. Uh, and those are the interesting things that Donald Trump is now having to deal with. And you get the feeling uh, as it slowly sinks in, we're only three and a half weeks in, as it slowly dawns on him the significance of the role, uh, it'll be interesting you know, to see if he continues to poke the bear or um, if he just cowtails to everything that the Chinese want or whatever it might be. All right, we got a couple more to go. And I apologize if I don't get to your email on this episode, I will get to it. I guarantee it. You're going to like the way I read your email. I'm like the men's warehouse guy. Oh my God. Well, we don't like him. He's not a, he's not a good person. He's a liar. He's a liar. Um, all right. This next email comes in from Cynthia. Uh, the uh, subject is education dumpster fire. All right. She writes, Ben, thanks for the great show in Chicago last weekend. It was a blast. Yeah, it was something. It was Malort, Malort. My head was about to explode. It was unbelievable. Malort is just, it's if, if the gout was a drink, unbelievable. But thank you so much. I had a wonderful time. Love, Chicago. All right. She goes on, I really appreciate your comments on education reform and standardized testing. I have worked for one of the larger testing software slash content providers for the last few years, and I see the issues firsthand. We have some states that are testing their students year-round and not seeing any improvement in their results than when they tested just once a year. I don't think it's doing students any service to spend most of the school year learning how to test or what may be on the test. What happened to the days for, uh, of learning for the sake of finding something you enjoy? My question for you is, is there a happy medium? Do we put testing in state slash local districts hands and let them build their own content at local level? How can we ensure kids are going to make it in the world without testing them to, to death? Thanks a bunch, Cynthia. Standardized testing. It's, it's interesting. You know, some of my friends uh, did very well with standardized testing and they enjoyed learning that way. Of course, you have people like myself who uh, did not enjoy learning that way and quite frankly found it to be uh, an impediment to uh, education because teachers were robotic, uh, autom uh, automated, almost automated uh, creatures uh, with, with no free will because they had to teach to the test. 
And if their students did not do well on those tests, it would reflect poorly on them. So they're really in a pickle to use uh, to use a term that Marcus absolutely loves. They are really in a bind. They are in a pickle when it comes to their abilities to teach. I don't firmly understand how we live in a nation, and we talked about this briefly about healthcare on the last episode, where I believe you should be able to get healthcare from all 50 states across state lines. It's not crack cocaine. It's not heroin. I don't understand why we can't get healthcare across all 50 states. That's ridiculous, and everyone agrees. Uh, when it comes to education, uh, it's the same thing. We live in a nation of options on every single possible thing. Shoes, shirts, clothes. Uh, which are shirts and shirts, uh, anything. We have dozens and dozens uh, of options uh, of Q-tips. How don't we have education options? That's the question. Uh, you know, obviously we can go back the textbook issue, most of them being um, uh, sort of um, catering to Texas or California, the large states with large populations, hence large school districts and the need for books and their big big money grabs for the textbook industry. If we have standardized testing uh, really put in place and pushed under uh, W, I mean, why can't a school district uh, ask students, do you want to learn through the test, to a standardized test? Is this a way that you learn? Are you a common core student? Do you enjoy more of an abstract uh, thinking when it comes to doing math? What is your strong suit? How do you learn? And now you can choose from one of three or four different uh, programs to go into. I don't see how it's that difficult to do. Listen to the students. Listen to the parents of the, of the child. Figure out how this person uh, learns. And, 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 and uh, obviously we can't do 100% individual different methods of learning every single time. That's called homeschooling. If you really want to do it like that. But I don't understand how schools uh, aren't given the right or the legal ability. That's the problem. These teachers want to teach, as we saw with Molly Neffel, who will be coming on very soon uh, to get more uh, to discuss about education more in depth. They want to teach. That's all they want to do. They have a passion for it. No one ever graduated high school, went to college, graduated with a degree in teaching without a passion for teaching because high school sucked. Who would ever want to go back there? I mean, Drew Barrymore, never been kissed. She got to relive the experience and be a popular girl. Uh, but that's that's not real. It's it's always horrible. So I don't understand how we can't uh, have a buffet of options. You know, and then, of course, we're also teaching st students things that are totally not applicable uh, to the real world anymore. You know, we need civics classes. We need technology classes. We need classes that focus on the jobs that are coming uh, in the future. And that's why I would push for vocational training in high school. Because what's happening now is these students are getting out, forced to be taught to the test, and they're coming out with no life skills. And if they don't go to college, they have zero chance of getting a job. Vocational studies, There's, a, there's a, we talked about this on the last episode as well. I think that is the key. Because then people, everyone's talking about free college. What if you could just get the education you need in high school? Why, you know, free college, uh, which, you know, I can understand uh, the motivation behind it, and I certainly don't disagree with that, uh, because it is certainly another layer where we can weed out uh, lesser thans from the people who are supposed to make it on top. 
I get that. But what if we just had a, a high school experience that was informative and educational so when you graduated, you could get a job? That makes a lot of sense to me. And then you don't have to, we don't have to worry about free college. We can get people vocational skills, technology. You know, that, I mean, why can't a student, uh, you know, be able to study, uh, you know, computer science starting in, in eighth grade? And, you know, obviously this requires funding. We have more money per student than any other westernized nation. And the money is just going to the bureaucracy at top. The administrations, the administrators need to be gutted. There needs to be less of them. They need to get the money to the children. It's the same thing with trickle-down economics. It doesn't work. The people along the way, they all take their piece of the pie. And by the time it gets down to the uh, constituents, by the time it gets down to the students, they're left with nothing but crumbs. And, uh, and it's not right. Maybe, a little, maybe you can get a little cherry or something like that, too. But. So that, you know, that, that to me is, is, is the perfect union between standardized tests and, and people who think differently than standardized tests allow them to think. I, I don't see, and of course, we'll uh, give them all equal importance. So if you want to go do a standardized test uh, to graduate freshman year, do it. And a person who creates a wonderful project uh, will have the exact same importance placed on that project, and they can also graduate. Uh, you know, what if, why isn't, uh, you know, if somebody who wants to go and be 16 years old who does a mock uh, campaign to go run for uh, Congress, that to me is a scholastic thing. That's a scholarly act, and that should be judged as such, regardless of if they understand uh, what bubble to fill in with some abstract question. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's the thing with these standardized tests. They'll ask abstract, uh, abstract questions, and you're forced to fill in one of them. But if you really think about it, oftentimes, this was always my experience, two options are plausible. And you could argue that both would be right. Anyway, I, so I'm just completely for um, more options in education, vocational training, and, uh, and letting children not decide everything that they want, because if kids had their way, uh, you know, certainly if I had my way, I would just have like, I want to learn about pepperoni today um, or whatever it might be. I want to learn more about pro wrestling, which could also, that's a vocation. Why not, why not start teaching that? I learned above a bowling alley uh, to be a pro wrestler for six months. It was very interesting. Um, so yes, the education system has to be fixed. And uh, I think our generation can get it done. All right, the next email coming in is from Nicholas, and the subject is the shape of the future. All right, he writes in, hey, Ben, love all the stuff you put out, especially Abe Lincoln's Top Hat. Thank you so much. Since Donald Trump won the election, I hear on podcasts and reading articles over and over people saying how confused they are, how they don't understand why things are going the way they are, and, and that they are scared. For years, I've been reading the work of people like English historian Arnold Toynbee and German philosopher, German philosopher Oswald Spengler. Both of, whom both of whom described the ways that civilizations develop, the common courses they run, and how they fall into decline. Spengler, in particular, in his book The Decline of the West, described the way that civilizations trans transition from the usual politics of factions competing to gain power and address the needs of their constituents to the politics of personal charisma centered around seemingly larger-than-life individuals. Spengler called this new phase Caesarism. 
because it because it was Julius Caesar who helped bring the old politics of the Roman Republic and usher in and uh, in in the age of charismatic dictators in Rome. I would like to suggest that the rise of Donald Trump, as well as the many other would-be populists across the Western world, is, in fact, not an aberration, but a symptom of deeper historical events. I don't know if this transition is really in, uh, inevitable or if it can be stopped, but more people should be aware of these concepts. Because of my reading in this area, I was not surprised that Trump became a serious candidate for the office or that he ultimately won the election. And it will not be surprising if similar things come to pass in other in other Western countries as well. Also, one last thing. Everyone remember that the political right does not have a monopoly on fascism or political violence. Kick Antifa to the curb. They are wolves. Thanks again for your excellent work, Nick. Well, thank you so much for writing in, Nick. And this is something that we saw. And you can go back to our um, Anthony Atamanek interview, uh, of course, the great Trump impersonator. And, and, of course, what we've been saying throughout the entire 2016. Donald Trump was a perfect reflection of of the constituents and a perfect reflection of this nation right now. We have Congress with roughly 10%, 11% approval rating on a good day. Nobody likes Washington. So, of course, uh, this man who literally said he'd burn it down, drain the swamp, get rid of everyone who ever held public office, of course he's going to be able to do well and resonate with a bunch of people. Uh, you know, going back to your politics of charisma, uh, this isn't a new phenomenon, but it's definitely, uh, you know, we can harken back to, to John F. Kennedy um, and, uh, and his uh, television appearances versus Richard Nixon. There's no doubt it was a cult of personality there. Uh, people just thought that JFK was, was far superior, uh, you know, to, uh, to Nixon on television. We have Barack Obama, who everyone said he was the, he's a celebrity president. He was a senator. And now we actually have a real celebrity in chief in Donald Trump. Um, and I, I, I totally understand and I completely agree with what you're saying um, when it comes to him and, uh, you know, understanding that American politics have changed to a point where you don't have to have policies because we haven't had a policy debate in this nation in decades. And because we haven't had a policy debate, because um, educational institutions have failed us on every single turn, our nation has become system systematically dumber and dumber and dumber and more susceptible and vulnerable to an insurgent candidate like Donald Trump, who has no real policy, no real political ideology. I mean, going back to the first email we read, or one of the first emails we read regarding religion, he talked about all you have to do to get the religious people on board is to pretend to be pro-life, uh, talk and be strong about uh, Israel. He knew he's, a, he's an adulterer, uh, he's an adulterer, he's a philanderer. He, he's not evangelical, but he understood that if you say those things, people who uh, have no other option in their opinion to vote um, for who to vote for other than a pro-life or pro-Israel candidate, although, by the way, there is no not pro-Israel candidate. That's just a total lie and a complete and utter uh, misnomer. Um, but he knew that. And you put those people in a position where you're the only one espousing their values. And boom, you're guaranteed to be in regardless of how dim you are upstairs, regardless of the lack of actual belief, a lack of a foundation. There, and that was the same thing with Hillary Clinton. Where is your foundation? That, and that's why Bernie Sanders did so well, because he's been saying the same thing for 30 plus years in public office. And that's what people looked for. So that was a bright spot 
in this cult of personality election cycle and where we are as a nation right now. So I, I, I think that's a fascinating email, a great point, and, uh, and I'll have to look into those two scholars that you cited um, because it is obviously, um, it is the new reality. Uh, personality trumps intelligence, personality trumps um, any kind of, of, of moral footing. It's a personality-based um, election. And of course, you know, with that, I blame pop culture. I blame the MTVs of the world. I blame reality television. I blame uh, us celebrating negative. We talked about this on the show many times. I think we've been celebrating negative human behavior for decades in this country. The worst act gets the most press. Um, it is unbelievable what these children are exposed to on a regular basis now as normal. It is not normal to fight with your friends and throw wine on their face. That's not a dinner party. Real Housewives of Alabama. Okay? Real Housewives of Alabama would probably be very nice people. but uh, So, I mean, of, of course we're living in a nation now where we have a vulgarian, uh, someone who uh, bragged about committing sexual assault. Of course we live in that country right now because it has been a slow erosion of morality, a slow erosion of intelligence, and a definite, purposeful, nefarious plot by corporations to keep us consuming and keep us stupid. All right, we'll do one more. Uh, this one coming in from Emily, and uh, the subject is GOP slash Lord of the Rings metaphors. Oh, my God. Why would you do this to me, Emily? I have a hard, uh, hard enough time pronouncing names to begin with, and now I've got to do uh, the, the Lord of the Rings, for crying out loud. And, and Marcus isn't here to help me. You understand? Without Marcus, I mean, I, I'll not, I won't pronounce any of these names right. All right. Well, nonetheless, I will do my best, and I apologize for the Lord of the Rings fans out there as I butcher the names of some of your favorite characters. All right. This email coming in from Emily. Um, Dear Ben and Marcus, I was mid-opening I was mid-opening an email to start a rant about how there's no way I was going to stand for Donald Trump being the Theodon in this week's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, Lord of the Rings metaphor. But before I could even but before I could even open a new email, you would already fix the problem. So high five for that. Mostly because if Trump is Theodon, then that makes Ivanka Eowyn, and there's no way I'm letting that happen. Although if we did continue the metaphor, Ivanka as Eowyn would make Jared Kushner as Farmer, so I guess that's cool. We could also make Paul Ryan Legolas because of those dreamy, bright, sea-blue eyes. Anywho, so instead of ranting, I'll just say thank you for a quality show. The topics get me laughing while considering new political opinions at the same time. I'm gradually making my way through the cave comedy radio programming, and I'm enjoying what I'm hearing. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Emily. P.S. I'm working on getting to the last podcast live show. I'm six foot three in heels, and I think Ben and I should stand next to each other in order to in order to look average for once rather than exceptionally some might even say monstrously tall thanks again emily well absolutely i can't wait to see what the live shows emily uh that'll be perfect we'll take a picture and everyone will be like what's that what's that normal looking couple uh doing but by the way you are normal six foot three is absolutely beautiful and there's nothing wrong with being a little bit different i'll tell you that um uh, the sameness you know everyone wearing khakis 1984 all those things, that's dystopia. we got to have tall people, we got to have short people, fat ones and thin ones, and everything in between. So thank you so much for writing in, and thanks for everyone who wrote in. I apologize if I did not get to your email. I will be doing these once a week, um, 
and uh, and I promise you, I will get to them. Uh, keep on emailing me, uh, and I am excited to read them. And thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, of course, find Marcus Parks on Twitter, at Marcus Parks. Instagram is the same for him. I'm Ben Kissel, uh, one on Instagram and at Ben Kissel on Twitter. Uh, you can also now uh, buy Ablingen's Top Hat T-shirts. So please go out and do that. Um, thank you so much for supporting the show. Uh, you guys are absolutely amazing. And uh, please tweet at me. And, uh, and I'll be sure to uh, respond whenever I can. All right, everyone. Talk to you soon. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 